All right, folks, this is Sean Zock, joined as always by Dylan DeChair. This is The Drop Zone. We did not deliver a podcast last week, which was smart because you did not want to hear my voice. It was in shambles. Sad, really, though. But we are back. Uh, we have an interview with Slugger White coming for you, the keeper of the rules. Pretty interesting combo with his thoughts on pace of play and just everything in his long career working for the PGA Tour. His real name is not Slugger. You'll have to listen to the rest of the <laughs> podcast to find out. Yes. So anyway, more on that later. Before that, we have some overreactions. You know, the PGA Tour has been here for three weeks, and we're going to overreact to everything we know, which is really not that much. But for now, Dylan, you went to Cabot last week without me because I was sick. You have two minutes to tell me how Cabot was. Go. You were not there. This doesn't count as my two minutes yet. It's You're on the clock. But I would like to say that you deserted me in our two-person buddies trip to Cabot Links. So I made the trip <laughs> solo up to Cabot. Um, all right. Two minutes. Three takeaways from Cabot Links. The first takeaway is just how remote this place is. Mm-hmm. I left from New York, flew to Halifax, drove three and a half hours to get to Cabot Links. That's like... That's a full day's worth of travel just about for a place that isn't super, super far away. Shout out Newark Airport, one of the worst places in the world. Um, <laughs> but when you get there, you're really there. That's the flip side of it's it. It's kind of like abandoned that way. People that are there have fully committed to the idea of being you know, in Inverness, Nova Scotia. Yeah. And really what that means in this case is being at Cabot Links Resort itself. You know, There's not a lot else going on around there. The whole place is pretty, you know, that's the nicest self-sustaining. Way. Yeah. The nicest way of saying there's nothing else. Around. It's beautiful. It's remote. There's nothing else there. All right. Second thing, uh, the resort does not really get in the way. You know, we just released our list of top 100 resorts. I don't think of myself as being traditionally like a big resort guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably a lot of golf writers, not big resort guys. Um, but the resort here as at Bandon, just it gets out of the way and it lets you have your own authentic experience. Okay. You know, you're running around playing golf, you know, you, there's not a lot of amenities. There's not like a big time spa, anything like that. Uh Oh, running out of time. All right. Number three, really, really, really fun golf. Um, it's the type of place where you finish a hole and then you, you want to throw your ball back down and like hit a chip shot to like mm. see a different way that you could have played a certain shot. There's crazy slopes, massive scale. Um, Cabot Lynx feels like it could have been there for a hundred years. Old traditional Lynx course, great flow to the place. Cabot Cliffs, Cabot Cliffs is like a modern wonder. Um, it's like the bandit equivalent would be like old McDonald and Pacific dunes combined running out of time, Yeah, but it's massive scale. (laughs) Six par fives, Sean, you would like that very much. A nice beefy golf course. That was well done on two minutes and 10 seconds. All right. I appreciate your lenience. Yeah. I mean, everyone in golf media has pretty much gone to Cabot this year at some point or another. And what I was looking for is just something that I never heard before. Mm. And the whole, everyone loves Cabot, right? It's a beautiful golf oasis. Yeah. But the fact that the the resort gets out of the way, like you said, stream song is like that. You can go out for these little six hole loops on every single one of these the courses down in Florida. Mm -hmm. Cabot, if it's anything like that, it's a great place. What, can I sneak in one last take? All right. You know, 16 and 17, mm-hmm. Cabot Cliffs, most photographed holes on the property. Yeah. Two wo- two worst holes there. That is 
<laughs> that is a, a, a 30 seconds that could probably take up 30 minutes of an explanation. But <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Champ won on the PGA Tour at the Safeway Open. MJ Hur won on the LPGA Tour. Kirk Triplett won on the Champions Tour. What inspired you most this weekend? I mean... Is there Let's any other just choice? go with the obvious moment here. Um, Cameron Champ's reaction when he rolled in his winning four-foot putt yesterday at the Safeway Open was enough to even melt your cold, cynical heart, Sean. <laughs> this thing, I mean, first of all, I think the length of putt I would least want to face to win a golf tournament is like that three to four-foot oh. range because... You can miss it. You can miss it, yeah. It's like being a you know a, a kicker in the NFL only bad things can happen. Mm -hmm. You're expected to make it, but it is really easy to still miss that thing. So for him to do that, uh, when he was clearly so emotional, you could see him collecting himself before the putt. And then right as it rolled in, you know, he immediately burst into tears. Um, obviously for, for those of you who haven't seen it, he was really playing in honor of his, uh, grandfather who's in hospice care with stomach cancer and, uh, was commuting back and forth to his hometown of Sacramento, which was about an hour away yeah. all week. I mean, it was an incredible story. The fact that he won this week, yeah, he hasn't He's really struggled. seriously contended since he won last year. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, it, honestly, it just reminded me that golf, professional golf, is so familial. There's like the family behind these players – is there at all times. Like you understand that the PGA tour, the LPGA tour champions tour, like a lot of people like treat their opponents, like their brothers, like they're one big family. You know, they always call it a fraternity on the PGA tour. Um, but the families that are actually behind these people, they always take center stage during these moments of victory, like wives and spouses run onto the green when a player wins um, they hold up their children during the trophy ceremony. There are always their parents there. Like Gary Woodland wins the, the U.S. Open at Pebble. Cameras are right on his parents the entire time. It's about him and his wife and, the, you know, what they've gone through. It's all f so familial. And it brought me back to last year when we were at Mayakoba mm -hmm. practice round. We're following Cam Champ, and his dad is there following him through yeah. the practice round two days before the event even starts and later that evening cam champ forgets his bag and mm -hmm. his he's looking for his golf bag and it's like halfway across the property more than a mile away and who brings the golf bag to cameron champ his father and his father even scolds him in that moment he's like i will not bring this bag to you again i will never do that again i yeah. think is what he said yeah and basically it just it, no other pro sporting circuit has families behind it as much as pro golf, pro golf does mm -hmm. in my opinion you don't see it in basketball like you know zion's parents are in the stands but his family was the people at duke for mm -hmm. his experience like his growing up within the game a big part of that is his teammates and his coach the same goes for college football like trevor lawrence at clemson yeah. his family's in the stands but for better or for worse his family monday through friday it's his teammates and his mm -hmm. coach Dabo sweeney so you end up getting baptized within this game from your grandparents, your parents, and they never leave you. They're always there with you. Justin Thomas's parents, obviously Cameron Champ's parents. Like that is, that's something that pro golf has. Yeah. Well, when you talk about, you know, we'll, we'll talk about team tiger, right? Because it means different things for different guys. For someone like tiger, it's more like, Oh, you've got the, his girlfriend, his 
you know, advisor McNamara, <laughs> his agent Steinberg, his spokesman uh, Greenspan. You know, it's different things for different people. But Cam Champ, we saw this firsthand. But then the world saw it when he won the Sanderson Farms last year. Even then, it was his dad coming onto the green. It was his grandfather, you know, on FaceTime or on his phone. So that's always been like a big part of his identity is this close, close family relationship. So we already had some context for just how much it meant. And then just to be able to see how much it meant and uh, who I think Terry, Terry Gannon nailed the call. He was, you know, saying, look, most of us have never been in this situation, but uh, you know, we're all family members. We're all somebody's grandson, granddaughter. Yeah. Um, so it was an incredible moment. It definitely hit, hit close to home for me because, and this is not to bring myself into it, but my grandpa's nickname was Mac. My grandpa taught me the game. Like everyone has that person. And oftentimes it's either your dad or your grandpa, maybe your mom, like family is embedded within golf. Now that we got that really heartfelt part away, uh, out of the way on the podcast, we are going to get very emotional in a different way about some overreactions. We are three weeks into the PGA Tour. It is time to overreact. We know pretty much nothing, but we've seen everything we need to see. We have three overreactions each. Dylan, what is overreaction number one? Well, I would disagree that we don't know anything because I think we know everything. And my first (laughs) overreaction is that by this time next year, Tony Romo will be a (laughs) full-time member of the PGA Tour. You're, You're bad. Sure, he didn't enter Q School this year, which is a big miss in my opinion. But I don't know if you saw, Sean, he shot two under par 70 <laughs> during Thursday's round. He was became the darling child of sports blogs across the internet. And clearly this shows he's got the game for the big show. He was sitting inside the top 30 after a full round. Thursday's round. Mm-hmm. Thursday's round. Made a whole bunch of birdies. Um you know, started off his second round with a, a 340-yard tee shot right down the center of the fairway. You know, I'm not actually sure what happened after that, but that was <laughs> evidence enough for me. Romo is ready for the tour. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think you were going to go that that strongly in that direction. I thought about saving that for number three, but came yeah, out of the gate. sorry, I can't hot. agree. Uh, my first overreaction is that Phil Mickelson – is going to need a special exemption from the USGA to play at winged foot. Phil Mickelson Whoa. has no exemption getting him into the U.S. Open next year. Yes, he's had a great career. He's had a great career at the U.S. Open, but he has no exemption other than he needs to be in the top 60 around May 20th next year to get that exemption in. Or he's going to end up going and, and taking part in local sectional qualifying. That's incredible. He's played bad golf for about eight months now. His 17 tournaments since winning the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, he has amassed in those tournaments 21 world ranking points, which over time depreciate to 18 and a half points. That's how the ranking works. Like your performances net you this number. That number depreciates over time. So his bad year of golf is only going to get worse in how valuable it was to him. He needs to earn that top 60 ranking in 2020 because he really doesn't play that many events in the fall. And he knows this too. You want to know why? Yeah. Why? Cause he's playing this week. He hasn't played in Vegas <laughs> since 2005. Yeah. He usually only plays the safe way. He might not allow himself nor- near Vegas. Usually, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's probably, a, it's probably a good place for him to avoid, <laughs> but he usually plays great. The Safeway. couple top tens in his career in the last three years. 
misses the cut last week. Oof. He's playing in Vegas this week. All I'm saying is that Phil is probably going to, if he jumps out of the top 60, all of a sudden the red light's going off. Wow. I like that one. Would he, would he get an exemption? Yeah. He probably he would. would get an exemption Sorry, twice. not to undercut. <laughs> all right. Cameron Champ. I'm drinking the juice, baby. Cameron Champ is on his way to eventually becoming world number one. Oh, my God. Cameron Champ murders the ball off the tee. His game is ridiculous. This week, he led the field in driving distance and also scrambling. If you look at the list of guys that have done that, it's a lot of Tiger Woods and Justin Thomas and Bubba Watson, guys that have eventually ascended to pretty much the very top of the game. Look, this is not a bomber's course, the Safeway Open. The guys in contention, were you know, it's not just guys that smash it off the tee. Cameron Champ has got touch. You saw it on 18 when he needed it. He needed to get up and down, um, and he did. He hit a touchy little chip over a bunker, made that four-foot putt, and oh yeah, he had hit his tee shot 370 yards. Cameron Champ is the real deal. He's the future of golf. He will be world number one. For better or for worse, he is the future of golf. I think really just more than anything, he proved that bomb and gouge still works everywhere. The goat. It doesn't matter. Overreaction number two from me. The Americans are going to lose the President's Cup. Oh. <laughs> That'll get you going. Uh, Dustin Johnson, he uh, had knee surgery mm. about a month ago. He is playing one tournament, the Hero World Challenge, prior to the President's Cup. He is going to be banged up, and he's supposed to be our leader. He's one of the only guys that that we always look to that you're going to win a couple matches, DJ. So he's a little bit banged up. Are there any other leaders on the team that have had knee surgery recently? Uh, Tiger Woods. Tiger <laughs> Woods probably going to be on the team. Uh, he's had knee surgery. He's going to play a skins match and the Japan event before playing the Hero World Challenge. Shout out Zozo. Uh, it just comes at a weird time. Americans are not used to peaking in early December when it comes to professional golf. Usually the President's Cup is right after the Tour Championship, after, you know, American probably won. Like in 2017 when Xander Shoffley mm. won the Tour Championship, Justin Thomas won the FedEx Cup, and uh, the President's Cup was just absolutely dominated. It almost ended on Saturday. We're going to be fat after eating a bunch of turkey at Thanksgiving. Yeah. We're going to be is that a sub flying. Brooks? We're going to be flying across the, country, across the world in time just to make it to Australia where – International players have been playing, presumably, for a couple of weeks. No Spieth. Yeah, I mean, I could see Brooks Kepka's like, biorhythms being off without a doubt in uh, you know December. He's not playing serious golf that time of year. Yeah, I mean, the only other time that the Americans didn't win the President's Cup was in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, I forgot about that. No, no, no Spieth. Potentially no Patrick Reed if he doesn't get chosen to be a captain's pick. There will be Patrick Reed. One of the one of the best captains picks that Ernie Els will make will be Jason Day. So like, all I'm saying, we're not taking him seriously, and it could happen. Well, it's interesting you should bring that up because it transitions nicely to my final overreaction: Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka, no longer friends. You saw says who? It says me right now. Serious XM last week. Dustin Johnson <laughs> was asked about who should have won Player of the Year. Rory or Kepka, <laughs> and you know you have to imagine Dustin Johnson was not super prepared for this question, so I think he defaulted to uh, you know PGA Tour talking points. DJ's a sneaky good spokesman for he'll slide in like you know shout out to the Wyndham rewards and stuff like that. 
DJ was like, you know, I think they got it right. You look at Rory's year, he just had a better year. Brooks Kepka does not take kindly to people that slight him. It's just Brandel Shambly, now Dustin Johnson, his best friend, right next to him in the world rankings. I have a feeling that they'll probably get over that. The rift. All right, overreaction number three, the final of our segment here. Sam Burns wins either of the next two weeks. Oh, I love this. People who follow yourself and myself might know that approximately 10 months ago, we put Joaquin Neiman, Cameron Champ, and Sam Burns on the cover of Golf Magazine. We called them the Young Guns. We had a sit-down Q&A with all of them. And you might have also noticed three weeks ago, Joaquin Neiman, he won for the first time on the mm-hmm. PGA Tour at the Greenbrier. This past week, Cameron Champ wins in Napa. It is Sam Burns' time to put up or shut up. You got to join the Young Guns, Sam. I think he could do it. He's number one on tour in strokes gained off the tee right now. Really? Yeah. That's the perfect time for an overreaction. Yes. Number one. He's just pretty awful off the green, around the greens. Um, I imagine he's probably not going to play in Japan or in China towards the you know the next couple months or weeks of the PGA Tour. So it's got to happen right now. Jeez, he's, he's a Louisiana boy. Houston he's Open. He's playing in Houston in two weeks. He's playing this week in Vegas. Uh, Sam Burns wins either the next two weeks. You can get some new, uh, some good... Good numbers on that action. Yes, we might definitely. have to invest as a <laughs> as a drop zone. All right. Before we get to Slugger White, here is Jonathan Wall. He is Golf.com's equipment czar. He is hosting Fully Equipped along with Tim Briand. It is our equipment podcast. Here is Jay Wall to lay it all out for you. Did you know Bryson DeChambeau recently switched to graphite wedge shafts? What about Adam Scott using an 11 and a half degree driver? Now you're probably wondering what the heck any of this has to do with your game. Actually, more than you might think. What's going on? This is Jonathan Wall, Golf.com's resident gearhead and also one of the co-hosts of the Fully Equipped Podcast, where we take the latest tour news and make it relevant to you, the everyday golfer. We also dive into classic gear from the past and unearth $2,800 sets of Ping I2 Beryllium Copper Irons. Now if just hearing the words Beryllium Copper makes your heart skip a beat, then this podcast is definitely for you. We also have interviews with some of the biggest names in the sport, from recent tour winners to the guys who actually created the clubs in your bag. So if you're a gearhead like myself, give Fully Equipped a try. We promise to make you smarter about your gear and keep you entertained along the way. And now back to the drop zone in an interview they recently did with PGA Tour rules official Slugger White. All right, thanks, John. Uh, This interview with Slugger was done a couple weeks ago. We saved it for right now. The rules are always a, a talking point, so we hope you enjoy it. Joining us now on the Drop Zone, Slugger White, the man behind the hat, the golf cart, the mustache. Uh, Slugger, thank you for coming on the Drop Zone this morning. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much. So in researching this, the first, very first thing I found out is that your name is not in fact Slugger. That was not your given name. I, I have to ask you, does anyone still call you Carlton White? Absolutely no one. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a lot of people even know that. That's right. And I think that golf fans, you know, we know you pretty well now in your current role, but there is so much more behind the Slugger White, you know, golf background. So 
tell us just a little bit about your playing background for starters and, and how you got to where you are. Well, I think I turned pro, you know, as a professional in 1971 after I finished school. And then I played Florida Winter Tour. I played mini tours, you know, in different parts of, uh, well, like in Arizona and uh, mostly in Florida. I took a job, I guess it was up in New Jersey one summer to uh, teach in a golf camp. I'd go up there and try to play and I was hired by a gentleman up there named Ben Hart and uh, just kind of kept playing and uh, played halfway decent up there. Won a few tournaments in the New Jersey section. I'd come back to Florida after the summer. What's your scouting report on your own game? Strengths, weaknesses, and who? what kind of guys were you playing with? Well, I guess probably, you know, I feel like I was a good player. I think you needed to be a you know, a great player like these guys are now. And I just didn't probably get to that level. I was lucky enough. I won the, the Met Open up in New York in, I think it was like 1975. And uh, then I thought, you know what, well, shoot, I think I can play. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I ended up, had about four or five guys that sponsored me. And I played from uh, 70, played 76, 7, 8, and 9 on the tour. Unfortunately, we weren't playing for the kind of money we're playing for now. <laughs> no, I would imagine not. And at the time, were you a rules stickler? Did you know the book backwards and forwards? Well, you know, quite honestly, I thought I did until I took this job and I found I didn't really know what I was, you know, I had no idea. <laughs> there were so many little things that you don't understand. I mean, I knew the bulk of it. I thought, you know, I could get off a cart path and knew what knew what to do about that. But <laughs> when it gets to a lot of the uh, the intricate parts of it, it's uh, you got to know what's going on. All right, so then tell us about your transition from player to rules official, because it wasn't that long, right, before you were out on the tour in a different capacity? Exactly. Well, then, I, you know, it's like I kind of toyed around whether I wanted to go, you know, and be a club pro. I interviewed for about four different jobs, and uh, four different times they went the, went the other way, and looking back now, they did me a favor, to be quite honest. Uh, in 70, 79, I kind of quit playing. And in uh, 1881, I tried to try to play a little bit in the summertime around Florida. And in uh, in 82, I guess it was the end of 81, um, I was contacted by Clyde Mangum, who was the deputy commissioner at that time for the tour and worked under Dean Beeman. Mike Shea was working for him then, and Mike and I played the tour together. And, and Mike kind of geared me toward Clyde, and Clyde gave me a call and asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, sure, I'd like to entertain that idea. And uh, he had me fly down to Ponte Vedra. And I met with him, and I met with Dean Beeman, and uh, after sitting down with Dean for about 10 minutes, I walked back in Clyde's office, and he said, well, what do you think? I said, well, I think I'd be interested. He said, well, if you're that interested, the job's yours if you want it. <laughs> wow. And that's where, kind of where we went from there. It was probably about an hour's worth of time that I spent with Clyde, and uh, he was, was a wonderful guy, and then started working in uh, January of 82. So that's almost 40 years of almost 40 years exactly <laughs> that's, that's a long time and i always say i started when i was 12 did you ever think about leaving that post or has it always been good to you no it's been great i mean i've been lucky enough to be around a game that i love and i don't have to, and, and uh i said <laughs> my big big thing was i found a way to make money on the tour i went to work for it's worked out extremely well and i've been uh, very very lucky i have to say all right, and I've got to ask you about your very first ruling on tour, Slugger, because I think there's a story here. It is. Uh, the first one I had by myself was in San Diego. We get a call down on the 12th hole at uh, Torrey Pines. We always ask who the player was so we'd know who to go to. Well, it just happened to be Jack Nicklaus. 
Jack and I, you know, fortunately talked that day or that week, and he said, I understand you joined the uh, rule staff. And I said, yes, I did. So uh, I get this call, and Gordy Glenn was kind of my mentor. He was one of the rules officials that kind of took me under his wing. And he said, go ahead, you can go handle this. So I, I drive down there. You could hear me coming from about six miles away because the because the <laughs> cart was pretty pretty noisy. And I walked in, and there's the bear standing there. I said, can I help you? He said, I'm looking at this. I said, well, that's just a French drain, Jack, and uh, we'll treat it as ground under repair. And he looked at me with those steely blues, and he said, are you sure? And I said, I'm positive. He said, okay, where do I drop it? And then we went from there. And it's the start of... That was my first first ruling by myself. I'm sure Jack won't remember that. But I remember it vividly. Unbelievable. And I imagine that that was a tricky part of the job and maybe continues to be is the way we see you guys on TV or even when we're at the events is like, oh, these guys are the, they're the umpires, they're the officials, they're just by the book. But you also obviously have personal relationships with these guys, especially then just as players. Well, it, that that was the nice part about it. That's what Dean Dean and I talked about, and also Clyde. Before I started, I was basically walking into a situation where I've probably been ninety percent of the time. And plus, the fact when you know the guys, it's easy to walk in and say, "What can I help you with?" Whoever the player was, Jack or Arnold or, or you know whatever whoever it was. It's a nice comfort feeling that that you do know the players and uh, and they then they know you. There's a lot a lot of confidence there. But on the flip side of that. If you have a good relationship, as you should with these people, at some point you get that relationship gets put into a, a bit of a sticky situation if they are unsure of your ruling, disagree with you. I suppose you have to go through testy moments like that. Well, you do. And I always said, you know, it's like you're dealing with a golf ball and then that golf ball doesn't have a face on it. So what do you want to do from this? And like I would say to you, Dylan, what do you want to do? I go through your options, tell you what they are, and uh, and then we go from there. So uh, that that golf ball never had a face on it. I always kind of looked at it as that. I'm curious how you think players have changed over the years, from you know right when you started in your current role to, to the players now. What are some of the biggest differences you see in the guys on tour? I don't think we know the players quite as well as we did back then because obviously I you know I played with these guys for. 10 or 12 years, you know, playing many tours together. Uh, you, you try to get to know these new players, and they're almost a little more hands-off. Mm-hmm. I don't know the reason for that. I, I don't know if it's the way they were brought up. I don't think there's a lot of uh, real personalities there that, that we deal with right now. Interesting. There's definitely fewer of those uh, big-time like nicknames and, and maybe legendary figures now than then. Do you think that's right? I think you're exactly right. Yeah, exactly. So they're just playing for so much money. You know, guys are just kind of, you know, go about their business. You know, we get to know each other after two or three years. I you guys spend some time out there. But sometimes there's such a turnover that, that you don't get a chance to uh, meet and talk with these guys. So I've got to ask you, I actually got a ruling from you this summer. What? Yeah. I was caddying for Martin Trainer <laughs> at the Memorial. And we were having a tough day out there. He had dumped one into the pond. I actually can't even remember which pond it was. It was that kind of day. But uh, it made me realize you run into players in some testy moments. You know, sometimes it's just a cart path, but sometimes it's, you know, a guy's deep in the woods or something. Is that tricky just having to manage these, you know, personalities at, at fraught times? I, I, th- I think it is at times, but, you know, the, the rules are there to help you. They're not, they're, they're, we're not there to penalize you. We're really there to just, you know, what can I help you with? What do you need? Now, you are not the only person giving out rulings, but you are the one that everybody knows 
probably better than anybody else. How do you manage being uh, the guy that probably needs to be in multiple places at once or, you know, be on the fifth hole and then on the 17th hole a little bit later? We all kind of have a little area. If there's eight of us there, we try to split the golf course up to where we can get to where we can as quickly as possible so the guys don't have to wait. Like a perfect example, last week at the Greenbrier, uh, my area was like 117. I could get to two. I could get to, to 11. And if need be, I could get to 12. When I go to Vegas like next week, I sit behind the second tee and I can get one, two, three, part of four, eight, and part of nine, and, and sometimes seven. It sounds like Vegas is a pretty great course for you then. Is there one course that is better for your ruling position than, uh, than the rest? I don't think uh, all of them are kind of, you know, have their own, own differences, probably, like uh, like at Memorial. I usually sit behind, you know, to the left of 14. And I can, I can get 10, I can get 11, I can get 14. If I need to get to 12 and 13, I can get there, you know, with not too much problem. So it just, it just kind of just depends on, on, on where it is and what the golf course is, and we try to split it up. So I'm curious uh, your thoughts on some of the rules changes this year, Slugger, because at the beginning of the season, it sort of seemed like Armageddon with some of the, the player comments. Uh, there weren't necessarily that many rulings, but they were definitely under heavy scrutiny. How do you feel like they went then and now looking back? Um, how do you see them? I think the USGA, I think they did a great job with it. Now, there's a couple of things that we've, that we've changed. I really like the idea, and I was a big proponent of, of the ball on the putting green. You know, after, after you mark it and you place it, you basically own that spot. I was a big proponent of that for probably about six or seven years, whereby after you've marked it and the ball moves, you need to put it back. And I kind of referenced that with the point of, if you're on a part three hole and you mark it and you hit it above the hole and uh, and you mark your ball, put the ball back, go go look at the other side and a gust of wind blows the ball in the hole. Well, prior to 19, that ball would have been holed with, with your tee shot. We haven't made a one. Mm-hmm. You need to put the ball back and go from there. So I was a big, big, big proponent of that. We kind of pushed for the, you know, 14 clubs. We've changed that. So, and, that, and that's fine. But other things with, with the penalty areas now, uh, we don't have equal distance on an opposite margin that, that we had in the past. There's a couple of places that we do have that. But that's a time saver. I think the, the three minutes, you know, for searching for a ball, I think is good because I think after three, you know, <laughs> if you don't find a ball within three minutes, probably you don't want to find it. You, you need to go play that provisional or, or go back to where you, where you played from. So I think they've done a really good job with most everything. Now, early in the year is when it was most contentious, obviously, and it really quieted down throughout the summer. But I'm just looking through my television set, and I see you in a lot of, like, don't shoot the messenger kind of situations because these rules were created and adjusted by the USGA and the RNA, and they are given to you, the messenger, to enact them and to keep them. Did it feel like you were in a don't shoot the messenger situation pretty often? I think we were. We were lucky enough about the first two months we had someone with the USGA uh, that, you know, put this thing. It, it, this is like a seven-year process, you know, that these uh, new rules have evolved. And we were lucky enough to have someone with the USGA with us for the first, I think it was like eight weeks. We would ask them questions about it, why this, why that, why the other. And it was very, very, very helpful for us, all of us, to get the background for a lot of these things. At the end of 18, we had a big uh, three-day uh, rules session with the USGA in Orlando. 
you know, it was about a seven-day process into three days for us. And it's been a learning process all year long. And I said, I'm going to take it and make it just have, have a lot of fun with it. It's, it's try to relearn or unlearn 38 years of, uh, of what, we've, you know, what we've had in the past, and we'll just make the best light of it. All right, so Slugger, I've got to ask you about a couple issues that have been, you know, in the media that players have been talking about. First, backstopping. Is this a real issue, and is it something you guys pay a lot of attention to? I think we do. It gets some notoriety for a while, and I haven't seen it really anything. I, I think guys have been a little more cognizant about what's going on, and I, I haven't really seen an issue with that. Uh, at, uh, in fact, I haven't seen it all at all this year at all. That's also one of those things. I'm sure you go up against this all the time where if there are four major golf tournaments happening on a given weekend and there are 150 people playing in each of those tournaments <laughs> and they're on a different hole, like all someone needs is a camera and all of a sudden it looks like your team isn't doing your job. That must be just very frustrating in, in terms of just like the Twitter mob going out and making a backstopping a bigger deal than you think it is. It is a little frustrating. Some of these cameras that they do take from their iPhones and stuff like that, I don't see that they see the whole picture sometimes. They just see one little isolated incident. So many times that, that ball was, doesn't even come into play. It does save time. And uh, yes, it is frustrating, for, for lack of a better word. It's just something we kind of deal with, and we'll just go uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever we're given, we'll have, we'll have to react on it. Yeah, and then... Slow play is the one that has really gotten a lot more um, play. You've heard Brooks Kepka, Rory McIlroy, Bryson DeChambeau talking about it. Do you guys see that as a big issue? And, you know, what are some of the steps that you guys take to keep play moving? I don't see a big problem in the last 40 years or 42 or three years that I've been around the tour. We just need to kind of recognize the guys that maybe do have a little extra time that they don't need we, we just need to uh to adjust that and try to help them out as far as saving time i don't think we're going to save a lot of time i think it, just so many times it's been earmarked with uh, certain guys with certain shots that take a little bit of time and, and uh sometimes it takes a little time and uh, you're playing for a lot of money you know joaquin neiman he won a million three last week sometimes it takes a little time to uh to hit a pressure shot and i think part of the problem is the greens are so quick now. When I first started, shoot, you know, the greens were running nine and a half, ten. We're, we're looking at eleven and a half, twelve now, and guys don't, uh, they don't, they don't finish hardly at all. You know, it's like they putt and they'll go and uh, and they'll mark a ball from a foot where it used to you could you could kind of step across the line and tap them in, but uh, you don't see that much anymore. Yeah, it, Solheim Cup this past weekend had slow play as an issue too, or at least it was deemed an issue because. The weather was crazy on Saturday's rounds, and women were standing over the ball, and they couldn't decide if the wind was changing. I guess for you, is pace of play a relative thing? Should it even be enforced in match play, or is it far more important in stroke play? Does that like delineation even occur to the tour? Well, I didn't. I didn't see any of the Solheim Cup, so I really don't know anything. I can't. I can't comment on that. But like last week, we had 156 players, and uh, and and you know you got 26 groups on 18 holes, and and sometimes you know it's like guys are going to wait. We're just trying to keep help play going. We don't we don't want to see a hole open. If there's a par five open, we'll go ahead and we'll warn a group. 99 times out of 100, they'll catch up, 
and they'll get back in the flow. We're just trying to keep everything going. That's all it is. And are there any changes that you guys would like to see to the way these things are enforced? Do you like the idea of more penalty strokes or of a shot clock or anything like that? Or do you generally see it as we're in the right ballpark? I think we're in the right ballpark. I'm not a big penalty shot you know, person, but I think we do a great job. That's all we talk about all day long. Where this group is? Where's that group? Is anybody talking to this group? Uh, we're constantly talking about that. In fact, that's all we talk about on the radio. <laughs> and uh, and I think I think we're in a good place. I really, really do. And I, I think the tour has done a good job. We'll come up with something that uh, that makes sense. Uh, it's I, I think just, that's going to be a big thing on a on the pack meeting coming up. And uh, and we'll and we'll go from there with it. See what comes out. Do you take any cues from what the European tour? is trying to do i mean i imagine this weekend the bmw pga is of a, at least some interest to you on that front i think probably you know everything they've talked about i think we've already got in place and i think we've had in place i don't think that's anything any any different you know they've got a monitoring system but uh i, I don't know I, I think what they're trying to do would take about <laughs> take 15 or 20 officials every week wow to sit there and you know i mean if they go in and, and start talking to a, a group now they're going to go with them. They're going to monitor. That takes you away from your area. I really don't see a big problem in it. It hasn't reared its ugly head in a long time, and I don't think it will. And we've got a few just more fun questions here for you. The first one, what the heck is gravel, and what what is a loose impediment, and what is the line between, like, rocks and sand? Well, you got to be careful with. I, I'm sure you're talking about bunkers. What, what you can, what you can uh, remove it in uh, in bunkers now are loose impediments. You know, the player has to be extremely careful that what they want to look at and what they want to remove is in fact a rock or a stone or a loose impediment of some sort. And if it's not, and if they happen to pick up something that crumbles in their hand, now they've got a problem because now they they move the loose impediment. And you'd be under penalty with that. Who do you think is the pro that knows the rules the very best? Well, I've said that I think Justin Thomas is uh, pretty astute. I think uh, Charles Howell does a good job and, and understands, uh, you know, where, where we're going with that. I see Justin Thomas all the time, and he's always got a question of some sort, which is great. I mean, I, I love talking to him about it. And Charles Howell with the same thing, he'll, he'll ask questions. Um, but again, that that's our job. They're they're trying. They're out there trying to make a living, and uh, and we're trying to to help them help them around. If a player would do something on his own and make a mistake, now he's now he's on the hook for it. If we happen to get in there, hopefully we don't make a mistake. But it but it happens. It doesn't happen very often. Then the onus is on us. I think ninety nine times out of a hundred, these guys know what they're doing. But when they get in situations like temporary removal, obstructions, you know, little things like that, I think, you know, they don't know if it's intervention or inter- interference. Uh, what we can go to now, you know, we've got two different situations with, 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 with the TIOs now that we can, you can take relief. It's something they don't want to make a mistake with, mm-hmm. and I don't blame them at all. Yeah. Does anything stick out as the, uh, the craziest, wildest ruling you've ever given? Oh wow! Just the That'd most bizarre, think about. most bizarre scenario, uh, or, or something that you know probably isn't traditionally in the rule book, but you had to figure out. Uh, well, you've, I think you stumped me with that one. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I can't think of anything right now off the top of my head. I'm sure if I if I thought about it for a while, I could, but uh, oh, that'd be uh, that'd be tough to come up with right off the top of my head. I'm sorry. You know, 
rules and enforcing rules it seems to be a, a tricky thing in every sport like what is a block what is a charge in basketball nfl referees are having a hell of a time right now trying to figure out pass interference uh do you liken yourself to people in those positions you have to a little bit and i'm curious if you ever take anything from them in how they handle their job or if you are in contact with any of them about you know what their job is like no, I mean, I've talked to, uh, you know, referees and, and umpires in the past, but uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine, Jess Kersey, was the NBA official. And I said, you know, how, how do you do this? He said, well, we, we talk about it all the time. I mean, this is years and years ago. I mean, are your hands on the player, this and that and the other? I think they do a great job because ours is, is a situation where it, it doesn't have to be spontaneous. You know, it's like we can take a little time and tell the player, hey, we're going to get this right. Just hang on, you know, and keep playing. And most of these referees and, and umpires, they have to make a split decision. Now they've gone to a recall situation, which I think is good because they want to get it right. They don't want to ever make a mistake. And uh, and I think, it's, I think it's a really good thing that they're doing. All right, one rules question for you. On the 17th hole at TPC Sawgrass, there's obviously the island green, but then there's also another little island to the right of that green. <laughs> Say a player hits, it'd probably be a cold shank. It's right in the shank zone, and it ends up on that island. Does the player have to swim out to play that ball? Can you get, like, a <laughs> boat ride? What What are the player's options in that case? No, he would just either, either go to the drop zone or, or play again from the tee. That that area right there is still in, in the penalty area. Oh, Unlike God. a bunker, oh. if, if, there's, if there's an island in the bunker, that is not part of the bunker. But that would be part. That would be part of the penalty area now in seventeen. And could would you be allowed to swim out there? Yeah, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it. There's too many gators in there for one thing, <laughs> really? and, uh, and it's deep. Oh, all right. Yeah, some so, some are so probably better. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend others. anyone going out there. Do you miss the word hazard now that it's just penalty area? Yes, I do. Oh. It, because it, I have to think about it. You That's know, so it's sad. funny because. Like I say, this is trying to unlearn 38 years of calling them hazards. Yeah. And I have to really, you know, it's like, and, and we all make the mistake and say hazard because we've been saying it for so many years. And I really have to think, I have to think about penalty area now. One of the uh, the things you mentioned is that these rules, they take six or seven years. Like you thought about a rule seven years ago and finally it's kind of getting fixed. Is there a rule that stands out to you that you think should be fixed moving forward or five or six years from now that you'd like to see changed? Uh, now you, you got me thinking again. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I was a big proponent of the one on the putting green. Uh, we talked about the 14 clubs. Um, I'm trying to think if it would be something I would like to see provisional ball. Maybe, uh, you know, this, you know, anytime you put a ball in play, uh, second ball in play, let to be the provisional ball. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's people that don't like that idea, but I'd have to talk to someone about it. You know, just because to play a provisional ball, you must say provisional ball. You can't mm-hmm. say, I need to hit another one. You know, it's like uh, that might be out of here and put another ball in play. When you put another ball in play, then that does become the ball in play. Mm-hmm. So it does. it's not a provisional ball. So... I'm sure that's been thought of and talked about before, and um, you know maybe maybe we need to think about it again. I mean, the two that got probably the most attention at the beginning of the year were the the drop rule from knee height and then putting with the pin in. Do you feel like those now have just become accepted? I was a little bit 
squeamish about about the dropping knee high, mm-hmm. but I really like it because the ball doesn't go anywhere hardly. In fact, I had a ruling with uh, Padraig Harrington in uh, San Antonio, and he dropped the ball, and he looked at me, he said, it doesn't go anywhere, it does. And I said, it really doesn't. So <laughs> it really took away the second drop. You basically get it back in the, you know, in the position that that, uh, that you wanted, wanted to drop it in in the first place. And uh, and with the, with the flag stick in, I, I'm I'm okay with that. You know that's fine with me. That doesn't that doesn't bother me in the least. Yeah, one thing that seems like it's disappearing with the knee high drop is like those. You know, I remember Jordan Spieth maybe had a 10 minute ruling a couple of years ago when uh, his ball kept rolling down the cart path when he was dropping it from shoulder height. Now it seems like you have a little more control over where that ball ends up. Um, so. Hey, hey. Exactly. No, I agree with you 100%. You have golf everywhere in your family, it seems like. You are married to a, a pro caddy, I believe. And um, right. you end up being cousins of a sort with Joe LaCava, Tiger Woods's caddy. Is that right? Right. Uh, yeah, that was that's uh, my wife, Shelly, uh, who I think is uh, is the best on the planet. And uh, her her brother, Ken Green... Uh, she caddied for him for uh, for several years, and uh, Joe's mom and Shelly's mom and Shelly and Ken's mom uh, were sisters. So that that's where the uh, that's where the and, and their cousins. So we must talk about golf at Thanksgiving quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't we don't we try to stay away from it. And, and my, my son my son turned pro. He, he's a golf professional. My brother was a uh, is is uh, was a professional. Uh, he won, he won the Western state open a couple of times. It was a good play. He played the tour for a year. So we've got golf in our background. So, uh, and it's, uh, it's been, it's been a wonderful, a wonderful situation. Good situation. Is there anything that you would like, you know, listeners to, how does, how does Slugger White not have a Wikipedia page? That's my question. Is that right? No Wikipedia page. (laughs) I think you are famous (laughs) enough that you should have one. No. No, I do not have one, and I, I don't, I don't need one, Dylan. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Just, 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 uh, let me just sit in the background and just, when you need me, call me, and I, yeah. and I'll be there to help you. So here's my last question for you: Are you aware when you are on TV? Are you aware of kind of your uh, image? You're a little bit of a cult hero in the golf world. Your look, you zoom in at tense moments and golf competition. Um, are you aware of any of that? Not, not really. I don't. I mean, it's not something I think about. I mean, if, that, if that's if that's where you're going with this, I don't. Uh, no, I really don't. I, I mean, I just uh, I wear a hat because I've I've had so much skin cancer in, in the past. You know, cut off and burn off, uh, and I've been wearing that hat for a year. I, I mean, this started when I was probably in college wearing bucket hats. So I've been I've been doing that for you know forever and ever, and uh, and it's basically to. Uh, to keep the sun off my face and my neck and, and my ears. So uh, I've had too much stuff cut off and, and burn off in the past. Is it the same bucket hat or do you have uh, like 10 of them? I probably have 20, uh, 15 or 20 uh, Panama hats. Uh, I'll buy them, you know, online. I'll buy them, you know, if I see one in a, in a, in a shop somewhere that I like, I'll buy them there. I bought a couple in Hawaii at this, uh, this one store. <laughs> that I really like and then I'll go and then I'll buy them there. Um, and I'll go, you know, I'll, I usually go in golf shops, you know, all over the country. If I find one, then I, then I'll buy them and I'll, uh, I just stack them up. You go through them, you know, we're, we're out in the heat all the time and we sweat through these sweatbands and, 
they don't get to they don't they don't keep their color all the time and uh then it's time to let them go and find another one yeah so you're not brand loyal or anything you just as long as it covers the dome it's all good that's exactly right yeah i have uh i mean my 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 uh my favorite hats are scala hats probably and uh and I, i've got probably 10 or 12 of those and and i just just keep going back to them all right now now that we've asked you 10 last questions my last one is did you see uh there's been at least one person that has dressed up as Slugger White for Halloween. I was wondering if you ever, if you saw a photo of Brendan Porath, he's a friend of the show, had a great Slugger White costume a couple years ago for Halloween. Is that who that was? I had no idea who it was. <laughs> yeah. You saw well, it, who though. was it again? Don't tell me who it was. Brendan Porath. He he writes for SB Nation, which is a uh, a sports blog, and I think he's just a big fan. Well, that's awfully nice. Now, I did have someone send that to me, and and I had to I had to kind of laugh because I thought it was kind of funny. But I was I was honored that that uh, that the uh, <laughs> that he did it and, and and dressed up like that. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. All right, some guys are Jordan shoe guys. Slugger White is a Panama hat guy, and Slugger, thanks a lot for coming on the show and joining us. Dylan, thanks for having me, but I appreciate. It. I hope it was uh, it was entertaining and uh, and informative to everyone. All right, major thanks to Slugger White, who seemed like he only thought he was talking to you. He definitely thought he was talking to one person that yeah, whole time. That is really... We have to start hard. putting on accents or something so people can tell which of us is which. Oh, that was sad. Fun interview, though. Fun little combo with Slugger Carlton. Slugger. White. Carlton White. Um, all right, real quick, a fantasy update. I am doing my best to win you guys, the people who backed me. A brand new Cobra driver. Mm-hmm. I've got the lead by how many thousands? Uh, you're at 2.1 million. I'm at 1.6 million. T- Tim Riley, Team Wolfpack, is at 250,000. <laughs> Come on, Tim. Get Brutal showing. But finally, Team Wolfpack is going to see a start this week from... Uh, yeah, it's Captain. Yeah. Matt Wolf. Matt Wolf. Uh, who, is, who is Tim dropping and picking up? All right, so Tim is dropping Max Homa. Did make the cut this week. Made a, I don't know, 20K or something. Dropping Max Homa, picking up Brooks Kepka. Respectable <sighs> move. Understandable. Um, I've got bad news for my followers and for just the world in general. Sung J.M. is taking a week off this week. <laughs> and I would love to keep Sung J, but I can't do it because, I look, I'm 500K back and I need every single start I can get. So I'm dropping Sung J, picking up Chez Reeby. Wow. All right. I am going to drop the doc, Mr. Redman. Mm-hmm. He he really performed well until last week, a couple made cuts, and then a missed cut. I'm picking up Tony Finau. Oh, man. That's such a better pick than Chess Reeve. It's all right. No offense, Chess. I actually believe in you more. Live and you learn. All right. And then are you doing anything else? No. All right. Your wraparound. It's going to come back to me. Justin Thomas, also tempting to keep him in an off week. I'm dropping him. Thanks for the 300K. Jason Kokrak, welcome to the squad. And you think you're going to beat me. Chez and Jason, a couple big weeks for those guys. I think that's good enough for our fantasy picks. Again, I'm doing my best to win you a Cobra driver if you backed me. There's about 20 of you out there who backed me, and uh, you know your heart's in the right place. Before we go, we need to talk about quarterback handicaps really just handicaps in general but in particular one quarterback's handicap i'm not sure we need to talk about this the handicap of one tom brady 
quarterback for the New England Patriots. Some Nothing people, to see here. Some people call him the GOAT. I'm not going to go that far myself. Dylan probably will. But Tom Brady has a questionable handicap. That's my take. Now, here's what happened. Our intrepid instruction editor, Luke Curtinine, he was checking Brady's handicap last week. I'm not sure why he was, yeah. but he was. As one does. Um, I have no idea. But either way, he noticed that in March of this year, shortly after winning a sixth Super Bowl, Tom Brady posted a score to his handicap of 106. He followed that up with a 95, but he has since posted mostly scores in the mid to low 80s. Tom Brady is an eight handicap. He is a single-digit handicap, which I would tend to think pretty good golfer. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone's first defense is that Tom Brady, he just, you know, he hadn't played in a while. He's been going through some tough times. Maybe he got the shanks one day and was hitting everything out of bounds. The problem with that is that Tom Brady, for a single-digit handicap, the highest score that he could ever post on a par 72 would be 108. So if we're assuming that the course he's playing was a par 72, which is a fair assumption, Tom Brady basically played the worst possible round of golf he could possibly play and record in his handicap. You know, the thing about this is a lesser Not man than it. a lesser man than Tom Brady would probably be a little ashamed to post a score <laughs> as high as 106. But to see not only that he has that sort of honor to post that on the USGA site, but then also to show improvement, clearly was working on his game to get it back into the 90s, then back into the 80s. You got to respect that. Now, this might not be the easiest thing for people to understand because a lot of people think handicaps is just the average number of strokes that you take above par or based off of the course handicap how well you played compared to what you were supposed to play at that golf course. That is not what a handicap is. Can you tell people what the essence of a handicap is? Well, look, a handicap, you're really only supposed to shoot your handicap once every four or five rounds. Because? Because it's based off potential. Mm -hmm. It's based off of what you can play based off of a single course and its rating on a given day. Now, the reason why Tom Brady's 106 is so screwy is one, he had not posted in almost four years prior. That is shady on its own. Two, under equitable stroke control. That is what handicaps are supposed to be. If you are a single-digit handicap, the worst score that you can record on any hole is a double bogey towards your handicap. Dylan, you're a scratch golfer. I'm also a recently newfound single-digit handicapper. Wow, no big deal. The worst handicap score that either of us can post from any hole is a double bogey. If you are a 10 to a 19 handicap, the worst score you can post is a 7. If you're a 20 to a 29 handicap, the worst score you can post is an 8. If you're a 30 to 39, you're really struggling. The worst you can post is a 9. Anyway, this keeps people from having 120 in their handicap, 130 in their handicap. And it keeps single-digit handicappers from having 108, 109, 110. You know, when people, uh, if someone wants to lose some weight or quit smoking, sometimes they'll put a post up on social media like, hey, just (laughs) wanted to make this official. This is me at my worst. This is me. This is uh, you know, I'm putting this up there because I want to say publicly, this is my goal is, is to quit smoking. I want you guys to help me. 
I think that that may be what we're seeing here. Brady's golf game was at a real low point. He was like, I want to just get this down on paper so that I can get some motivation to really go work on my game. I mean, we've got some inside info. We've had Brady spotted recently getting a lesson under the lights up at Silo Ridge, upstate New York. Under the lights, the guy's grinding out on his golf game. Clearly, the football team is doing spectacularly well also off to a 4-0 start. (laughs) You know, I've gone so far as to praise Aaron Rodgers on this very podcast. So the fact that you have not even agreed that Tom Brady is clearly the greatest football player in the history of the world suggests some bias on your part. I will give you that he's the best quarterback ever. I'll not call him the best football player of all time. There's a huge difference. Anyway, back to his handicap. To further... To further my point, if you are a single-digit handicap and you're playing a par 72 and you are going to rightfully post a 106, that means that day you made 17 double bogeys and one par or 16 double bogeys or worse and two bogeys. Those are the only two ways that you could possibly reach 106. All I'm saying is that, you know what, Tom Brady probably was struggling He probably did hit a shank or two. He probably was OB a little bit in the hazard here and there, struggling to get out of the bunker, three-putting, maybe even four-putting. The point is, he probably did not have a handicap score of 106. He probably had a handicap score of like 98 and shot 106. He just shouldn't have posted 106. Do you accept that as a viable argument? I I will not have you (laughs) stroke-shaming on my drop zone podcast and uh i think that i've had about enough of this podcast for today wow well there you have it folks let us know what you think if tom brady is uh he's real or a bit phony with that handicap post he's a great quarterback one of the best quarterbacks ever. high integrity character all right i will let you have the final word dylan that is enough for the drop zone this week if you like us i know you'll like john wall go follow john wall and his podcast at Fully Equipped. Ashley Mayo's podcast is a way game. They're waiting for you to subscribe. Check them out. We'll see you here next week.